is Glenn Washington, the host of Spooked, a Luminary original podcast. Luminary always believes in amplifying black voices. And this month, they've curated a selection of their favorite episodes to share with you. If you like how this episode sounds, you can listen to more by going to luminary.link slash black voices. That's luminary.link slash black voices. This is the Blacklist Podcast. I'm Franklin Leonard, one half of your hosting duo. And I'm Kate Hagan, the other half of your hosting duo. And we have a really, just a really fun conversation today. Our guest is an activist, the New York Times bestselling author of We're Gonna Need More Wine. She has a new children's book called Welcome to the Party. She's an actor, and you may also know her as the captain of the East Compton Clover's cheerleading squad in the movie Bring It On. That's right. We have Gabrielle Union here today. We're going to kick off the conversation by taking it all the way back to bring it on and talk about some of the great teen films of that era. Then we're going to talk about some of Gabrielle's favorite movies, which range from Greece to Greece 2. And then we're going to bring the conversation contemporary, talking a bit about the evolving American family and how we consume media and content. We're going to talk to Gabrielle about how she shares content with her family, what movies they're watching, and how they navigate some of those difficult conversations around media. It's a really great conversation. She really is about that life. That comes up too. Enjoy. Here's Kate and I with Gabrielle Union. We love to open up every conversation by asking the same question, which is that, can you remember the first movie you ever saw in a movie theater? In a movie theater? Oof. And you want to set the scene for us. It doesn't have to be the like the first movie you saw in a theater, but like, what's your first memory of going to see a movie in a movie theater? That yeah, because I certainly don't remember the first right. one I would have seen. Um, geez, that is a great question, and I I don't know why this this one's coming up, but great. That's all um, we need. That's all we need it, is the one that like first comes up. <laughs> So it was after, it had to have been after the uh, Los Angeles Olympics and Mitch Gaylord did a, a gymnastics movie that starred Jenny Jones, who was a dancer that, I don't know if you guys remember from uh, the movie, A Chorus Line, and she went on to marry this hockey guy. Maybe his name was Wayne Gretzky. But anyway, they were the stars of this this gymnastics movie. Um and I remember going to see it uh, at the the one theater that we had uh, really at the time in Dublin, uh, up in the Bay Area. Um, yeah, and I feel like it was probably packed. And I went with my group of uh, junior high friends. Yeah, um, the movie you're referring to is American Anthem. Amer- there we go. <laughs> there we go. American Anthem, a sports drama. The subject of the film was a football player turned gymnast seeking to join the United States Olympic team. Um, and Mitch Gaylord, go. gold medal U.S. men's gymnastics uh, in the 84 Summer Olympics. And yes, Janet Jones, eventual wife of Wayne Gretzky. Janet is, Jones. There that she, is, Janet that is Jones. amazing, actually. Um, yeah. What year was that? This was movie? 1986. 86. So that was seventh grade. And it was probably one of the only times I got to go to the movies, or one of the first times I got to go to the movies by myself, like, or, you know, with my friends versus like a parent having to come with us. Here's what's also amazing is that that was Albert Magnoli's follow up to the movie Purple Rain. No. The, dire- <laughs> the direct, that, that movie was directed by the director of Purple Rain. Two years after he did Purple Rain. I don't even know how to feel about that. 
Same, honestly. And he was <laughs> and he was also briefly Prince's manager. I'm just reading the Wikipedia page now, but this is a discovery, to be oh. sure. <laughs> All from the random and I believe this was Mitch Gaylord's like opening and closing, right? I don't think he had like a, a career uh in in the cinema after this. Uh I don't I don't believe so. Um uh, well, actually, he was the stunt double for Chris O'Donnell as Robin in the 1995 movie Batman Forever. No way! That really? was the other... And he currently works as a financial advisor at Morgan Stanley. <laughs> what? What a life. A remarkable thought. life. That's an amazing um, trajectory. That is... Wow. This is a heck of an opening to this conversation. <laughs> I did not... Really see it going this way. Um, wait, but you mentioned the, the Bay Area, because yes. I think of you as being from Nebraska. Yes, yes. I'm originally from Omaha, Nebraska, and my parents uh, got transferred to the Bay Area in the early 80s, in 81. Um, and we moved to uh, Pleasanton, um, which I rarely admit. Uh, I usually just say East Bay, and because, you know, ra- <laughs> racism, well, people generally well, just yeah, assume I mean Oakland. People- <laughs> From I was gonna say that's how people from the Bay are, basically. You know, and I let them. I don't generally correct them. I'm like, mm, yes, yes. You know, you know, the vague Bay Area, East Bay. No one ever asks. Could it be Pleasanton? You're letting people assume you're from Oakland. I'm not. Like it's fine. I'm fully okay with that. Yeah. Yep. That's. I wish I had anything in my bio that would allow me to do that. Um. Okay, so first movie saw in a theater, American Anthem. Second question is, what was the movie that made you fall in love with movies? That made you say, like, oh, this is what I want to do. Oh. oh. Well, see, the, the movie that I'm, I've been obsessed with my whole life from a very young age is one of the first movies I remember seeing repeatedly was Grease. And being drawn to Chacha de Gregorio, the best dancer at St. Bernadette's, with the worst reputation, um, and Rizzo. Um, I, I was never, I never wanted to be Sandy, never, never wanted to be, you know, um, uh, uh, brush up, brush up, brush up. Like, I didn't want to be like the, that friend. I wanted to be, if I wasn't going to get to be, you know, Sandy, give me Rizzo any fucking day. Um, or Cha-Cha. I, 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 I've always been drawn to um, the cooler, less girl next door type of characters. Not that I've got to play them that often, but... Well, do, do you feel like those characters were the first time you saw yourself on screen? Like we often ask people, no. like, what is the first time <laughs> like, you saw yourself on screen? But, like, like was, that, was that the moment, or was there another moment, or do you feel like you ever... Ha- like, like, what, like, talk to us about that. Thinking about, like, what I was watching in my childhood, no. Um, the first time I really felt like, oh, Black people, um, was... When Di- uh, when uh, Janet Jackson was on Different Strokes as Charlene um, and Tootie on Facts of Life, there just really wasn't a lot. Um, Tisha Campbell had that show that I think lasted like, I don't even feel like it went a whole season, but it was like Rags to Riches um, where she went from Rags to Riches and she becomes a, a, a I don't know if it was an actor or a, an entertainer. But there just really weren't. The fact that I could name you those few. Right. Um, and by the time high school rolled around, when Vivica Fox was cast, she had an arc on 90210 as the popcorn king's daughter. 
and Brandon kind of maybe was attracted to her. And I was like, yes, we in this bitch. Um, but there just really wasn't like, cause Sparkle wasn't, I, I remember seeing Sparkle and more so the, the music, but in terms of someone who had hair like mine and skin like mine and um, who got to be the, the object of affection and the, the a lead, we just didn't have a, a ton. And I'm really thinking hard right now. Uh, with, yeah, in TV, we just didn't have, we didn't have anything. So I, I had to see myself in the people who were sort of off center, if that makes sense. Um, you know, I was, I grew up kind of being in the popular crowd. Um, so you, I had access, I had this bird's eye view of what it was like to be, you know, the center of the universe, but not being center of the universe, this outsider insider mm. view, which kind of sums up my time in Hollywood close Same. enough to see how it's actually working, but not really getting to enjoy all the spoils like Rizzo. Yeah. I... <laughs> she starts fucking, she gets pregnant. It's like, God dang it. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the school turns on her. Um, I'm glad you we're talking about teen movies because I have to take it all the way back to the first movie I ever saw you in, which was Bring It On. And I have to say, Gabrielle, you're in like the perfect quadrilogy of teen movies from that era. <laughs> Bring It On, She's All That, 10 Things I Hate About You and Love and Basketball. And I think the reason those movies have stood the test of time is that they're all sort of deceptive in presenting themselves as, you know, oh, it's a fun teen movie, but they're actually <laughs> about some really interesting themes. So I yes. was wondering what it was like to read Bring It On for the first time and realize and delving into these deeper themes around cultural appropriation, how we value certain people's art, and how we get into these like really complex teenage girl dynamics? Uh, that is a great question. In that the first reading of Bring It On, I read at home before this table read that they'd put together. And my husband at the time was more proficient in Ebonics than I, though I thought I was pretty proficient. So I kept coming across this this word and this in this word, it just looked like a bunch of letters because it didn't, it wasn't a word I recognized. And I was like, I, I don't understand what this is. Like, read this and tell me what it is that, that you see because I'm not getting a, a word. I don't even understand what sound this is supposed to be. And so he's studying and looking at it and he was like, wow, they really tried to write this out. And I was like, what? Tell me. <laughs> um, and, and he said, what they want you to say is, oh, say what it was. Like how Martin would say that in on the Martin show, like oh say what it was. So imagine how that might be spelled wow. out. Wow. Um, mm -hmm. And there was a lot of that. Um, there was a line that said, um, "Me uh, meow, me gonna ow you. My nails are long, sharp, and ready to slash." Uh, these were actual things that they wanted ISIS to say. So while yes, we were going to be talking about cultural appropriation, the the path to this iconic movie was not as smooth as um, you would have thought, given how the movie has, has you know, stood the test of time and, and how it's always sort of held up as this kind of beacon of light that was sort of subversive before its time. And um, yes, it was that too, but trying to explain uh, from a place of zero power, um, why these things were problematic was a uh, was a challenge. So 
I remember going to the table read and it, they had different actors come in and read reading the parts. And uh, I, I think it might've been like maybe one or two other people who went on to actually be in the movie. Cause I remember Ethan Embry was at the table read. That's one oh, of the wow. only other people I remember being at that table read doing Jesse Bradford's uh, role. And, and I was like, I have to say these things so they know that it's bad. <laughs> like, this is not good. Right. We will be picketed uh, if I say this. Um, but yeah, that was like really one of the first times uh, in my career where I was presented with this amazing opportunity that was kind of cringy and, and problematic and, and having to try to figure out how do I, in what tone and in what way do I explain that this is this is wildly problematic and I'm not going to say this, but I do want this amazing opportunity. And I just lucked out that Peyton was like, oh, yes, thank you, Gab. You're absolutely correct. We will change all of this. But it sounds like you didn't say this is a problem. It sounded like you went in and intentionally like sort of laid bare how ridiculous it was rather than saying, hey, guys, this is ridiculous. Yeah. So I went I, by the way I thought, like, if I give them what they've actually written and do it in a way that is undeniably cringy, maybe they will see and make the changes on their own, as opposed to I have to basically risk this opportunity by letting these powerful people know that I have a problem with these words. And a lot of people would have a problem with these words as written. Um and then after the table read, they asked me, they straight up asked me. And I was like, oh, Jesus. And you're all faced, a lot of us are faced with this moment of like, yeah. I thought I had idiot proof this, but I have to now back this all up with explaining page by page where we have to make these changes. Um, yeah, I was going to yeah. say, because the, the risk you run is them coming to you and being like, Gabrielle, this was amazing. Exactly, yeah. exactly that in the movie. We're we're done Do here. Do that, yeah. Um, and I've seen things like that happen before, so I I, I wonder like managing that fear has got to be stressful. And I'm sure it's also yeah. not the only time that you've had to engage in that sort of negotiation throughout your career. No, <laughs> I mean, it's it's ongoing. It's never stopped. Yeah. I wish it. I wish it had hit a peak in like you know the early 2000s. It did not. Um, no, this has been an ongoing thing, um, and it's a and it's a gamble every time. Just because you are the person that's like armed or tasked with right. the the responsibility of delivering um, the hard truths doesn't mean they're always going to be grateful for it or act on it. Um, a lot of times, they're like, "Thank you and goodbye," and that's just the reality. The, the flip of this is obviously, I mean, look, it's become a cliche joke at this point that you have not aged uh, in the last several decades. But the flip of this is that you have now been around long enough that you have characters like Isis who are the first time people are seeing themselves on screen. I mean, literally, yeah. the most recent episode of Insecure yeah. dressed as Isis. What's that like for you? Like, like what, like that it is, I mean, that character specifically, but just in general, this notion that the first time people are seeing themselves on screen is a role that you are playing and you are still here and looking roughly their age, but you know, my, you know, you know, the point I'm making. Yeah, no, it's, it's wild. Um, Cause we, we all, you know, got that movie or, or took that movie um, 
kind of as like a consolation prize. You know, the the cheerleading movie I wanted was, um, it was called Sugar and Spice. It was about bank robbing cheerleaders. And there was like, I don't know, a gang of them. I don't know, like 10, 12. It was a, a whole bunch of cheerleaders. And not one of them could be black. They decided not a one, like, I, you know, and I was crushed because I thought that was the cheerleading movie that was going to stand the test of time and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So when they were, you know, I was presented with this table read and and then like, oh, God, do I speak up? Because I've already lost, you know, this job or this, you know, the job that I wanted. So being tasked with this, this table read with Bring It On, it was like, God, do I tell the truth about, you know, some of these words? But let me go for it. So knowing everything that went into who got those parts, why they took those jobs or got those jobs, it feels really good to know that it's still resonating and it still means something, that that ISIS means something, and that all those fights and all those uncomfortable conversations created a character that that people still are like, yes. And and knowing that it's it's one of those badass motherfuckers that just doesn't take shit. And she's a leader and she's she's willing to sort of risk it all to stand up for what's right. And that is a character that that people are still fucking with after all of this time feels amazing. I feel like it's a really special space when you get to the point where, you know, there is a Halloween costume of a character you've played. That's a very rare sort of space uh, for actors. Yeah, like, and not only a Halloween costume, like a mass produced Halloween costume that you literally see multiple times every year, everywhere you go. I tried to get it. I tried to get it for my birthday this year. The or my original Clover uniform from Universal. They did not give it to me. So we had to. Wait, hang on, hang on. They didn't. Okay, Universal. Yeah, yeah they you didn't know give what it to do. you. As in, they still have it and refused, or did they were just like, sorry, we don't know where it is. No, no, they have it, it and they don't. They would not give it up. Would not give it up. I don't even know if I, it would fit. Put, to be honest, put it in the Black Smithsonian. That's my first. <laughs> but but seriously though, I would argue that that actual costume belongs in the the Blacksonian. Anyway, Kate, That'd take take us to, take us to the next the next phase. We're gonna pivot it back to the questionnaire a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. Another question that we love to ask everyone: What is your ideal way to watch movies? Whether that's going to a movie theater, mm-hmm. which we would all love to be doing right now, or in your home. Do you like watching movies by yourself? Do you like having snacks, silence? What's the vibe? So I don't know if this is weird or anyone else has responded this way. I l- prefer watching movies on a plane, um, like. Because I'm, I for the longest I was, I just live, you know, I've lived on a plane, and it's my time to completely zone out, you know, put my headphones on, whatever snacks the plane has available. Um, damn people and their peanut allergies and their nut allergies, because I love some warm nuts. Um, but alas, that those days are gone. Um, but yeah, I just like watching, you know, screeners, you know, when, since I've been able to have those. Um, just watching them on the plane. And I bring my DVD player so I can like watch my my uh, my screeners. I feel like it's the, it's the best time for me to be able to focus, have my alone time. Yeah, and I can actually really pay attention and I'm grateful for the time versus in a theater where you have to contend with other people. I can't deal with fidgeting. It's a, it's a thing, I can't do it. Um, and I live with some fidgeters, so I tend to not, <laughs> not love watching movies in 
in a you know at home or in the movie theater. Or at home. That's amazing. Yeah. Follow up on the yeah. plane movies question. Something that has come up a couple yeah. times on the podcast so far is: Do you find yourself to be a movie crier on airplanes more so? This is something we're finding as we talk to folks. I don't know if it. I don't know why. I mean, I'm a. I'm an emotional you know, content watcher, whether it be a podcast or, you know, a, an Oscar winning film, I cry. I like the snotty cry. Um, yeah, it's, it's bad. Like I, I don't, it's like I'm in my own pod, even though I'm not. Um, and I'm, I'm waiting for that day when somebody's like, you know, low key recording me watching a movie. Cause it'll, you'll, you'll see snot. I'm just going to tell you now. Um, I'm I'm way more locked in and way more emotionally connected. Um, so whatever that emotion is, you're gonna see it on that plane. It keeps it does it keeps coming up in these conversations. The plane thing uh, because of the sort of hyper emotionality, but also because I think it's a place where people do feel it's a release. It's like okay, I can do yes. this now and not worry about anybody else or a phone call or anything because I'm thirty thousand feet above the ground. Very well, strange. like it's, I find it bizarre and mainly because it's like, I've spent all this money to go to a theater, to watch a movie. I'm watching the movie. I, I, I want to be still. I want quiet. Uh, I don't want to see like, I don't want to hear pings on your phone or, mm -hmm. or your phone going off. I don't want to see the glow of people on their phone yeah. watching a movie. Like it's, it's so wildly disrespectful to me. I don't know, but um, I, I hate it. And it's distracting. I cannot stand I, it. I will say the other thing that weirdly is a pet peeve of mine, and I've started seeing this more often back when we could go to the movies, is people just taking screenshots of a movie, like not videoing it, right? Like they're not trying to make money by selling a pirated copy. They're just like taking single images. And I'm just thinking like, what are you doing with these? I don't know. Maybe I lack the oh, You post them and you say, at the movies. Maybe, but then you inevitably get a follow-up, a cease and desist order from the studio or whatever because you posted an image from a film that they own. Like, it's one thing if you're like, okay, let me post a photo of like, you know, the lights getting dark or the theater. But to actually post a photo of, you know, T'Challa, like, it just doesn't make any sense. Anyway, this, I, I've clearly moved into Uncle Zone where I'm just complaining about everything. No. Um, and this is the only time I will I will consent to being called an auntie. But this is like, I cannot stand it. I hate it. Yeah. I hate the rustling in a purse um, or a satchel. Yeah. I can't stand it. I'm with you. I'm 100% with you. That just makes me think of that. Uh, there's a great gif that goes around a film Twitter of Isabel Huppert being like, absolute silence, no snacks, no movement. That's the only way to watch a movie. You guys are in great company. Speaking of things sort of in the canon, are there any movies in the overall sort of great movies that everyone is expected to have seen uh, canon that you still sort of refuse to watch? Uh, yeah, and it's so embarrassing and I, it... it I hate telling people this because the reaction is like, <gasps> like I, I'm going to be kicked out. This is why we asked the question. I'm going to be kicked we out are of removing, We are removing the stigma. This is literally why we asked the question. I, I've probably seen about, combined, about 15 minutes of all three of the Godfathers. That's fine. You're allowed. Yeah, we're all allowed. coming clean on this podcast. Uh, that answer is more common than you would think. I, I have a number of friends who put off watching Godfathers forever, so you're certainly not alone. Yeah, it's I mean, but I have seen everything Christy McNichol uh, has been in. So I feel like it's 
about the same. Are there movies that you ha- that that you resisted watching, like The Godfather, that eventually you were just like, okay, fine, let me let me watch this, and you were just like, y'all, why didn't you tell me? And everybody in your life was like, we did. Oh, this is on you. Like probably Scarface. I watched like <laughs> two years ago. And I'm like, oh my God, you guys, this is where that line comes from. And they're like, yeah, no shit, you fucking weirdo. Literally, <laughs> every, every single black person alive is like, yeah, we have all been saying this is a very good movie. Yeah. Literally every rapper, every... <laughs> I was late. Um, I was late to the party. No, it's... I, but I've seen I have a, look, I have a list. Know. I have my own list. We talked about it. There will be more. I totally get it. But I watch um, all YA. Um, like. Uh. Well, here, here's the other thing. Everybody has their list because it's not possible to watch it all. The difference is, is whether you're honest about your yeah. list. And that is the key. The honesty is the differentiator, not whether you've seen all of the good movies. Yeah. Like when I, I, I told... Um, Michael Ealy, this, when we first started doing um, Being Mary Jane, and he, to this day, he'll randomly text me, I still can't believe you haven't seen The the, the Godfathers. And then I told Omar Epps when we were doing um, uh, Almost Christmas, and he, he he's just in disbelief. Like, he's they just can't believe it. I don't know if it's an East Coast thing or what, but like... It's not an East Coast thing. I mean, maybe, but I don't think so. But I feel like People they think less of me now. Like they lost something. That's that is that's their failure as a human being. <laughs> I bet there are great movies you have seen that they have not seen. So how about that? Probably like yeah. all of the Christy McNichol movies. <laughs> exactly. Uh, fun flip on that yeah. question. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say. Speaking of which, <laughs> uh, what is a terrible movie? We're talking like less than twenty five percent on Rotten Tomatoes that you will defend forever. Okay, here's another thing. I've never gone on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, so yes. I like why. I like I get it. Like I want people to like the things that I do, but I'm not going to I cannot like cl- like, you know, clock watch people's I can't it's healthy. This is the healthy approach. I can't. Let's so I've never this been on Rotten Tomatoes. So I don't know how low it is, but when it's come up in conversation, I would imagine that it doesn't have high ratings by most, which is the incomparable um, Grease 2. I love it in a way that is problematic for most. I love it. I, I love it. When people say, what's your favorite Michelle Pfeiffer movie? I'm like, not even close. Grease 2. <laughs> um, I've seen Michelle Pfeiffer in Grease 2. Like, and I was like, oh my God, you guys, guess who else is in Starface? Scarface. <laughs> it's uh... Stephanie Zanoni from Grease 2. I'm glad you brought up Grease 2 because I feel like there is some elitism with big Grease fans. Some of them really hate Grease 2, and I don't understand it because it's just two different flavors, and they're both great. They're so good. Adrian's mad. I mean, you guys, the gifts, the gifts that keep on giving from that movie. The reproduction song. song. Uh, Yeah. The parts of a flower are so constructed that very, very often the wind can cause pollination. See, I mean... I could go on and on, you guys, well, all day long. That, that is, let's just save that clip for to put this art, to, to put this interview out. <laughs> That's it, right there, <laughs> done and done. So I used to work for Sydney Pollock, and um, 
it was a highlight of my career for many reasons, but but one, because he told me something that, that continues to screw with my head. He basically said that he was only interested in making movies about two subjects because they were the only two subjects that in all of human history we have no greater understanding than we did thousands of years ago. So he only likes to make movies about love and war, mm. which I just thought was like a beautiful sentiment and then in my darker nights a more disturbing sentiment about the fact that we genuinely don't know more now than we did sort of at the beginning of human history yeah. but that be- that sort of begat this question which is what is your favorite movie about love and what is your favorite movie about war oh okay so i don't with full disclosure i don't watch a ton of war movies if you know Fair. um we can we can we can clip that one out and just talk about love stories yeah no well 1917 um a very good movie. Really about war. reignited uh, an interest of mine in in telling stories um, about things that kind of scare me, like war. Mm. Um, I kind of go in and out because the way my PTSD is set up, I kind of just go in and out of of wanting to sort of dive into certain things that that cause me terror, uh, like war. Um, but that movie was done so beautifully and shot so beautifully, and with these two sort of unknown actors that we all completely invested in uh in their journey throughout this um story i love um so yeah so 1917 um about love jeez it god i hadn't really thought about it that way like what movie about love do i love um i mean it has to be something about like with that 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 covers black love and the more i sort of read these think pieces about like Love Jones, maybe it's not as great of a love story. I mean, I don't know. It, it explores like the messy yeah, parts of love. This is a video, but y'all did not see me burst into laughter mm. at that mention. Mm. Yeah, because Love Jones was the movie at the time, and think pieces have definitely affected the way we look back at yeah, it. Yeah, it's, you know, perhaps a little problematic. Um, so I, I'd have to really, really rethink a lot of how I viewed a lot of the movies about love. Um, yeah, like like Sounder. I don't know if we if you would have thought if you could think That's of that a great answer. movie uh, in terms of I love. I love that answer. I, if we don't think of familial love um, when we think of love, and to me there is nothing that says black family more than Sounder and love. I absolutely love that answer. I love that movie. Accepted. Moving forward. Okay. Yeah, uh, you've got a brand new resume item to add along with New York Times bestselling author and activist, and that is children's book author with oh, Welcome yes. to the Party. Yes. Yeah, inspired by the birth of your daughter, Kavya. Am I saying yeah. that correctly? Yep, Kavya James. Kavya James. How did the idea for Welcome to the Party spark within you, and was your writing process any different than from your essay collection, We're Gonna Need More Wine? Very different subject matter-wise. Wildly different uh, <laughs> um, uh, storytelling. Um, but I, I, I was approached by HarperCollins, who I already have a relationship with um, for work, uh, you know, after We're Gonna Need More Wine, um, to talk about a way of celebrating how families are created, being a, an ally to the LGBTQ plus community, um, having a mother that uh, adopted three children after 60 years old, you know, getting, having Kavya uh, through um, 
IVF and then surrogacy, friends who are adopting, just knowing how families, you know, you have your chosen family, knowing how families are created, but they're not all celebrated in the same way. We don't have the the space or the luxury to, to really celebrate all the ways that family is created. And I wanted to have a children's book that sort of touches on that. But yeah, trying to, children book writing is a whole other beast. It's like writing a, a long ass haiku, maybe. It's, it's wait, 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 well, in what way? What are the what are the limitations that like people don't think? Like what like what were the things that most surprised you about the process of writing a children's book? Where you were like, oh, I mean, let me just knock this out. How how many how many words could it possibly be? Kids don't know that many words. Well, that. And then you were like, oh wait, <laughs> yeah, yeah, kids don't I can know only that many use words. Seven words. Yeah, and then like the rhyming and the couplets and and wanting to like, what's your macro? Like, what are we talking macro? And then figuring out the kinds of words that you can, should, could use to convey these larger themes to small children, uh, you know, um, was a challenge, a, a way, a much more difficult challenge than um, making the decision to talk about putting yogurt in my vagina. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair uh, enough. I just uh, like all the, whip, gonna... the head whips that you got. I just, now that uh, I can see your face, yeah. like, did she... Well, yeah. you can see our faces, but when this airs, <laughs> I, yeah, I don't... No, there's a whole ass uh, chapter in We're Gonna Need More Wine about, um, yeah, how to treat uh, a DIY treatment for um, a, a vaginal issue that involves yogurt. Use plain, kids. Use plain. Plain, no vanilla, no sugar, <laughs> none of it. Flavored, <laughs> not going to be so fun for you guys. This is... <laughs> this is a great way of getting into this question, which is that you've been so honest and upfront about talking about your journey to motherhood. And I think it's really inspiring because the media sort of presents one narrative around, you know, conception, pregnancy, motherhood, and that's sort of what we assume it is. But for many, many, many folks, that is not the case. Um, what's been the most surprising thing about sharing that journey so candidly with the world? I, I guess I, because when you're going through your own fertility journeys, it's a very isolating and lonely um, experience, uh, mainly because most people don't share it with even the, the people that are closest to you. It's So it's you and if you have a significant other, it just really feels like y'all against the world. Or if you're doing it on your own, which so many of my friends are doing now, um, it's just wildly isolating. And we tend to not share it. We tend to not talk about it. We just kind of are like, ah, and then a baby appeared and everyone's like, yay, baby appeared. But you don't really get into the the muck about how um, and how long and what that experience is like um, on, a, on, a, on you physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, financially, um, and certainly what that experience is like as a couple. Uh, and it's... It, the reaction, um, you know, on our book tour, I did, I forget how many cities, uh, a bunch of cities across the United States, and it felt like a revival. And the amount of women of every, you know, race, ethnicity, age, age was a big one. I mean, women in their early 20s, all the way, you know, all the way up, talking about fertility, talking about adenomyosis, talking about um, maternal health, um, was was surprising because during the process it really feels very isolating and you you're sort of made to feel like you alone are defective you alone um 
you know, are a failure when it is a very common experience. So I want to talk a little bit more about your family, specifically my teenage hero, Zia Wade. <laughs> like, I don't know that we can judge one's parents on the quality of the children, but if we can, you guys are doing an excellent job. And I'm just curious, I'm specifically interested in like how Zaya watches movies. Like, I know this is a very <laughs> narrow question, but like, when we talk, and how you think about what you let your kids watch and like what Kavi is going to watch and what that tells them about the world that they're coming up to into as, as black women uh, and as women who are going to be, you know, outspoken about the reality of, of, li of life as a black woman. How do you guys have that conversation? How do you negotiate the media that, that, it, that comes into your home and the effect that it has? <laughs> well, well, A, it's interesting that Zaya only, only, um, unless we force her, watches all content on her phone. <laughs> like, I mean, she's a teenager. It's out. What, so, yeah, some not, things are constant. Yeah, yeah these things check not, out. I, not iPad, not laptop. Like not the thousand and one TVs that we have here in this house, all on a tiny phone. And this phone is even big. Like her phone is like this. And she watches whole seasons of Frasier and the New Girl. We have battles about the content that she watches often, <laughs> but it's all on her phone, which so if anyone is worried about Quibi, don't. There's a whole there's a whole generation <laughs> that is like, yes, perfect. But in terms of like what exactly that she's watching, she tends to be pretty open and honest because she watches in, you know, with in front of all of us, with all of us, about what she's watching and why she's watching it. Her love of Frasier is really her love of Lilith. And I was like, okay, now did I watch Frasier? Did I ever get into it? I don't think I've watched a whole episode of Frasier ever in life. But I understood why what Zaya is is responding to and reacting to that she loves so much. The new girl, which I've you know I've probably watched about three seasons of I don't even know how many they've went like nine or whatever. I understand why she's watched all of the seasons and now is on time number two. Yeah, she's rewatching it. There's something about independent, fiercely quirky, unapologetically off beat, off-center, dynamic, complex, messy women that she relates to. We have had a, an ongoing battle about uh, friends versus living single <laughs> and her love of friends. And there's there's so many things that we're that we're trying to address in terms of content that it's an it's an easy way to to discuss identity and race, um, gender, uh, all of these intersections. I it's not it's not my job to tell my child who she should identify with and how and why, though I would like to. Because um, right. parents, cause, yeah, you know, that's what parents, they do. Yeah. Um, but watching her find her way. And this last school year is the first year that she's had a ton of black friends since, you know, our, our kids moved to L.A. She's got a ton of black friends. And that has actually, I've seen the shift in the content that she watches and then the commentary about that content. And it's changing slowly. The more she's got friends that look like her who also have big lives. I, I guess I, I don't recall having such big lives. These kids these days, I'm like, damn, these schedules are yeah. intense. Even in quarantine, y'all are booked to the hill. This is fascinating. 
But um, well, because she's only like twelve, she's right? 12, like yeah. she's a, she's seventh she's a twelve grade. year. Here's the thing: I stand a, a Fraser watching twelve year old. I identify with that. <laughs> that. That is definitely. I was that weird kid. People were like, "What are you watching?" And I'm like, "I don't know. Just see. I just kind of like these people. They have smart yeah. conversations." But like we all, as a family, we watched Sela and the Spades last Friday yes. night, opening night. So we we had. You know, we got food and we had, you know, the whole family. Everyone was literally sitting, you know, sitting watching uh, Sailor in the Spades. And it was like going to Magic Johnson Theater. My family, and this is why I watch things on the plane, they were talking and, and responding to the screen, what they were seeing on the screen. And it was so interesting that Zaya noticed how uh, Lovey, I want to make sure I pronounce mm-hmm. the, the lead girl's name, the girl who played uh, Sailor, yep. how she was lit. She noticed the cinematography. Well, at, for 12, her aesthetic sensibilities are pretty on point, just based on other things that I've seen, specifically y'all's debut fashion thing. <laughs> yeah. She's trying to figure it out. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, but it was like, because I was thinking it, but I'm like, my family doesn't care about, you know, cinematography. And then Zai was like, she's lit so beautifully. We don't get to see, like, he's like, none of the things, no, she's like, you know, none of the things that I watch are lit, like, the kids aren't lit like this. You don't see zits. And I was like, you oh, wow. don't see zits. And and Shout. and he was and she was like, you know, the more I'm watching this this girl be able to have zits and like imperfections, but she's still the girl was like shout out to Tyresha Poe, writer and director of Sila and the Spades, and Jomo Frey, the cinematographer. Always, yes. always good stuff. Yeah, it's crazy how those revelatory viewing experiences, particularly, I feel like when you're a teenager, it's like something snaps in your brain and you finally like understand a much bigger picture of everything that's been going on. Speaking of the bigger picture, activism has been such a key part of your role as a public figure. And whether that's bringing awareness to Black Lives Matter, to survivors of sexual assault, to reproductive health care issues, it's really impressive stuff. And it's the kind of thing that I think a lot of actors sort of tease at, but you're actually doing. How do you think that being a vocal champion for these causes has sort of impacted your life as an actor um, <laughs> when so many other actors just don't engage at all? I understand why people don't engage at all. Job security is a real thing and needing that check to clear is what most of us do the jobs that we don't love and love. You know, it's kind of about at the end of the day, we all have bills and that that understanding that something is happening that is problematic in the world and the and then actually speaking on that in a public way without mincing words is terrifying and there are real consequences i you know you you anytime you stick your neck out your neck out it can be the first one to get chopped off and that's just them just the facts and my experience uh, you know uh, fortunately, unfortunately, certainly in the last year, there's a there's a clear takeaway that I, I fear will not inspire more people to speak up. And I think that's I think that was the point of having me face, you know, me. Oh, my gosh. If if Gab can can, you know, lose out on opportunity uh, for speaking up and, and we'd like to people would like to think I'm you know, somebody who's decent and in reasonable standing in the world. If I can be so quickly and carelessly discarded for being very clear from day one, 
about uh, problematic issues, what hope do the rest of us have? And I think that was purposeful. And that's scary. And I, I get it. And it's not for everyone. It's not something to dip your toe in and run away. Either you're about that life or you're not. And for me, at this stage of my life, because uh, a couple years ago, I, I couldn't have had the exact same conversation with the same tone, with the same confidence that I am today. What I realized today is I am not interested in being in the room. And I actually saw that on social media this morning. I think it was a, a line from the new Netflix movie that's coming up or the Netflix show with Ryan Murphy. And it was like, it's, it's, you got to be in the room. And I, and the reality is for me, I don't want to be in a room where people don't want me there. I don't want to be in the room and then expected to be quiet. I don't want to be in a room with people that have openly and actively worked to oppress me and, and people like me and other marginalized folks. I don't want to be the person always has to educate I, I just sometimes want to go to work and if in success and I want to build, I want to build with people who are happy about that success, who want to make sure that that is normal and standard for all marginalized folks to to be a part, an active participant in the process. You have to be okay with wherever that leads. And at this stage of my career and being, you know, full disclosure, I've squirreled away money. I've never lived based on how, what I can afford today. I've, I've always lived like, if I got it, if this all goes away and I got to figure out what I can do based on, you know, my sociology degree, you know, what can I afford? And with my husband being who he is and what he's created, you know, for himself and for the, for the family, if I can't do it, shit, like I have to, like, I can't sleep if I don't. And what is the point? <laughs> what is the point of making it? I'm using my finger quotes here. If not to make it better and easier for everybody else. So, you know, when I created my production company, it wasn't another arm to create wealth for myself. It was if I got my foot, like a, a even if it's just my pinky toe in the door, I have to hold it open. I got to figure out what else I can drag to keep, you know, to, you know, prop up that door open. And I hope the activism can be married into content creating and creating more opportunities. Because really, what the fuck is it about if we're not all at least trying to, to win together? I've been in those rooms. I am not the happy Negro that's like, I made it! Um, and, and nobody else is there that looks like me. And I, it, it's, it's not a fun place to be. And I don't know why people want to be the magical Negro. I am not, I'm not the one who's, who gets geeked about being you the chosen know why. person. Well, you I know, know why, why it but, comes with a check. It comes ugh. with a check. But after a while, it doesn't feel good being well, cashing so that is, check so and then is, you're still stuck with them. Completely agree. So this is my <laughs> and they still don't fuck with you like at right. all. So this is my this is my follow up question, sort of on that tip. When when did you decide you were about that life? Because look, e even talking about bring it on, you went in with a plan for like how to manage a situation that you saw as problematic, and then you yourself said. I wasn't about that life the entire time, but now I am. Like, was there a moment that sort of preceded some event where you had to step up and do it? Like, like, like when, did, when did you sort of decide, like, you sort of looked around and said, you know what? If it's not me, who else is it going to be? It's like, I, I, know, yeah. I know when that moment happened for me, and I still, I struggle to live up to it on a day-to-day -day basis. But, like, like was there an was, was event, a, a, a sort of Keros moment, as Cornell West talks about? <laughs> ah, hmm. 
race matters. Thank you, Franklin. Um, I mean, you know, taking it, taking it back to the sociology <laughs> degree. I love it. Um, I've had a series of these, you know, as Oprah would say, aha moments, but because they keep happening, it just feels like, listen, <laughs> listen, bitch. Um, like, I don't know how many other ways I can show you before you get it. So I talk about in when I first got um, divorced and my show got canceled. And, you know, when I every time you reach rock bottom and you're like, OK, this is rock bottom. How am I going to rise from this? Every time I hit rock bottom, I'm faced with this. A, are you going to talk about hitting rock bottom? Are you going to talk about how you got to bottom, how you got up from the bottom? And every time I'm like, if I'm totally honest in these moments, I'm at risk and and to what end? Eh, you know, to what end? Yeah. Um, am I am I narking on myself for a greater good or to like entertain with my tea? And those and there's a difference in that, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and then something else will happen in my life where I'm like, now th- this is rock bottom. I'm not ever gonna. I'm never gonna pull myself up out of this. And I've just had those over my life. And a couple years ago. Uh, probably like right around the time of we're going to need more more wine, the book tour. And even with that, like there's, I don't know, a good 10 chapters I didn't include because I wasn't prepared to talk about them openly and honestly and be super transparent about those parts of my life. Because we all know how media works. You could say a thousand things. There could be the cure for cancer, you know, all these amazing things. And then one salacious thing, that's all they're going to talk about. And I wasn't willing to let certain parts of my life overtake the larger, bigger issues that I wanted to address. Um, But on that book tour, and people started asking me questions about things that weren't in the book. (laughs) Um, And I had those moments of like, oh, fuck, why did I say they could ask anything? And I could either fall back on some super cliche shit that they expect from us, uh, of us in Hollywood, or I could tell the truth and actually hopefully change some lives with transparency or through transparency. And when I started to think, I always, I, you kind of go into what do I have to lose? And when it comes time to being about that life, what I have to lose at this point is my soul. And I'm not willing to right. trade my soul for a check. And I can't say that I I wouldn't have done it differently a couple years ago. You know, we all have a line in the sand and that line in the sand can change Every day. That's why, like, uh, you know, I was tweeting about it this morning, but watching the documentary about, um, you know, the the Bulls. The Last Dance. The Last Dance and Scotty's contract. And that yeah, feeling. Same, same. That feeling of, I, I know what my value is. I know what I bring to the table. But I also know how many other people I have to be personally responsible for. So... For a lot of marginalized folks, um, a contract is never just a contract. It's it's the hope and the promise of better for not just yourself, but all of these other people, a, a whole community, if you will, um, beyond family. So it's it's the same. It's like, do you do what's what's do you do the right thing? <laughs> and sometimes the right thing is believing yourself and letting the chips fall where they may. And sometimes it's the security of a steady check, which is why I understand that being about this life um, and speaking up is not for everybody. And it's not always been for me. And I can't say that, you know, in an hour, I 
I might have to make a decision that goes into protecting all of the people I am financially responsible for versus the greater good of the world. You know, it's, you have to make this decision every day and it's a, it's a fucking tough one, but so is sleep. And I can't sleep when I know I haven't done the right thing. And that if me just speaking up can change even a little something for one person who I am today, I, I, I can't sleep. I can't, I can't move through the world knowing I've been called to do something and, and I'm not, I'm willfully not, I'm openly, knowingly not. You're just an asshole at that point for me. As you're sort of entering this new phase of your career where you're letting decisions be guided by, you know, sort of more than the traditional things we think about in Hollywood when it comes to taking a part, is there anything that you have not had a chance to do that yet in terms of acting <laughs> that you haven't been given the opportunity to do? I mean, you're quite a renaissance woman, but I'm very curious if there are worlds you have not gotten a chance to play in yet. Horror? Never done, like, a horror film I remember years ago, I went in and read for like a lot. What I, I uh, at least Neil ended up getting it, but I think it, I forget which scream it was, where they had a, a black alone, alone black, but I didn't get it. And I, I don't know if that one audition has just been like, well, you know, she's not good uh, in the <laughs> in the horror space. Um, so I've never gotten to do horror. I've never. Um, there's a lot of things, most things um, that you see, you know. Uh, actors get to play you you they see you as one thing and and that's kind of what it is now being seen as as a a girl next door is that the worst thing no is it kind of boring sometimes um a leader somebody who's uncompromising eh, I mean listen there could be it could be a lot worse things <laughs> that I've sort of been pigeonholed in but um <laughs> right there's a lot that I haven't gotten to play. And, you know, we just finished season two of Ellie's Finest and asking for more layers and more mess and more complexity. And, um, you know, don't feel like you have to be beholden to a brand. Um, I'd love to see where the writers, like wildest imaginations can go and then try, you know, like, uh, I, I will admit there have been times I have been tasked with solid material that I just failed. Uh, <laughs> I just wasn't good at. So I have to kind of be accountable for also like the some of the limitations um, and how people see me and my work. I haven't always been good. I haven't always been prepared. There was that one time I was fired off of the Cleveland show. I mean, to be fired off of a voice um, was a was a different kind of low. But again, you know. Um, taking, you know, being accountable for myself. And I'd like to think that now, hopefully people see that I'm, I'm recommitted to, do, to doing a good job and wanting to do different things. And I'm hoping that um, we can sort of redefine ingenue uh, as a girl with a, you know, a little bit more seasoning, um, a little more Tony Chacha Ray uh, yeah. on the resume and yeah, give me that- a chance to have a do-over. Or ten. All right, so we have we have two final questions, <laughs> okay. and these are sort of the ones we ask everybody. Uh, what is the single image from a film that has stayed with you the longest or had the most like impact? And that doesn't have to be like a single like still image. It can be a moment mm. or a cut or like the introduction of a of score. Like, but, but like, what's when you think of movies? What's the like ah uh, that that moment? It's. I mean, just to be perfectly honest, it's. It was probably like Judy Garland in um, Meet Me in St. Louis, where she's sort of, you know, kind of hanging off the trolley car 
Um, it's one of my sister's favorite movies that she watched nonstop growing up. And uh, I always just thought of that as what filmmaking is supposed to be. Now, of course, after watching Judy, I'm like, oh, God, poor Judy. Um, it wasn't all Moonlight and Roses. Um, but it just felt like, oh, that's what it's like, you know? Uh, you know, just wanting that experience as a Hollywood, you know, actress. Cut to, I actually got that experience. I didn't realize. <laughs> you know, it's... Um, it's the beauty of the the shot without the reality of the moment, if that makes any sense. And that's probably why it sticks out to me the most now. I'm going to bring it home with our final question that we also ask everybody. And that question is, if you could do a simultaneous film screening for every person on planet Earth to watch one movie, uh, we're going to ignore time zones and any kind of Wi-Fi streaming issues. What movie would you pick to show the entirety of humanity? Oh, gosh. Uh, Grease. Yeah, I was going to say, I think we already, I think we already know along. the answer to that. Yeah, uh, yeah Grease. Grace. Hmm. Yeah. Perfect. Yep. yep. From the Hollywood Bowl Thank with the Bowl Orchestra. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. From Luminary, the Blacklist podcast is a production of The Blacklist and Ninth Planet Audio. Our executive producers are Franklin Leonard, Kate Hagen, Han Zani, and Jimmy Miller. Gabrielle Horton is our lead producer. Nicholas Pertel composed our theme music. And this episode was edited and mixed by Kevin Liu. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at that Hagen girl, T-H-A-T-H-A-G-E-N-G-R-R-L. You can find Franklin on Twitter at Franklin Leonard and on Instagram at Franklin J. Leonard. And you can find The Blacklist on both Twitter and Instagram at The Blacklist, T-H-E-B-L-C-K-L-S-T. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, join us over on Luminary. We can hear more great episodes. Visit luminary.link slash blackvoices.com. That's luminary.link slash black voices.